Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I've asked you before and I want to ask you again, join the union.us. This is the single most effective way that you can help us ensure that every last pro-democracy voter gets to the polls this November. Join the union.us. Join more than 60,000 of your fellow Americans and more than 70 organizations from around the country dedicated to fighting for our democracy. Go to jointheunion.us and get involved. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Michael Fanone, former Metropolitan Police Department officer where he served for 20 years. Over the course of those two decades, he first briefly served as a patrol officer before spending the majority of his career as a vice investigator in various small mission units where he participated in over 2,000 arrests for violent crimes and narcotics trafficking and served as a special task force officer for the FBI, ATF, and the DEA and earned more than three dozen commendations for his work. Mike came to national attention for his service and bravery during the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol, and his new book, Hold the Line, tells the story of that day, but I think also much more that I want to get into, and is available wherever fine books are sold. He currently serves as a law enforcement analyst for CNN, is a security consultant, and a firearms instructor. Today, he's coming to us from Washington, D.C. Mike, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Mike, before we get started on the book or anything else, I have to ask, what is your favorite Sturgill Simpson song? Mm, I mean, it changes from day to day, but right now, Mercury in Retrograde is resonating with me uh, particularly. So, you mentioned Sturgill just pages into the book, and I, I'm a huge fan, and you're lucky enough to have gotten to meet him, which I'm also very jealous of. But Sturgill was my soundtrack as I read your book, and not a bad one in the bunch. So, Mike, I want to talk about. Obviously, your career as a law enforcement officer, because I think aside from your role in, you know, January 6th, where you were that day, I think also, you know, the first third of the book is really about your experiences as a street cop in Washington, D.C., a place that has a pretty good reputation for violence, drugs, all that. So tell us a little bit about, you know, you worked different jobs and then worked at the Capitol as a Capitol Police officer before you went to the MPD. But give us a sense of when you started on the force, how you saw the people that you were serving, because I think that's a big part of the book is that this is about as much about service as it is about anything else. Well, when I first came out into a patrol, the first thing that I realized was nothing in the academy and actually the two academies that I attended you mentioned I went to uh, U.S. Capitol Police prior to joining MPD. So I attended FLETC, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, and then MPD's academy. Neither of those academies prepared me for the reality of, I guess, for lack of a better term, modern-day policing. You know, Washington, D.C. in the early 2000s was still reeling from 
the uh, drug wars. It was very violent. We saw, you know, 200 plus homicides in uh, the first couple of years that I was on the department. Unfortunately, we seem to have returned to that in recent years. But um, my philosophy was, I would say, just like any other cop, I was, you know, an adrenaline junkie. I liked running and gutting, so to speak. And I wanted to work in proactive units almost immediately. Uh, my goal was to get out of patrol as quickly as humanly possible and get into you know, what our department refers to as special mission units, which are you know, your uh, vice units, your you know, narcotics trafficking focused, violent criminal focused units. But I started to, I guess, change my perspective once I got into vice and I saw that you know, our unit was being used as a body squad, so to speak. You know, patrol was busy handling radio assignments, and vice turned into the unit that was, you know, designated to generate as many arrests as humanly possible, because that's how we were quantifying success at the time. I think a lot of people, their knee-jerk reaction is to blame the police departments for, you know, quantifying success in that way. And, uh, you know, what I try to do in the book is talk about, you know, how that came about. And it actually starts at the, you know, the community level. Members of the community, residents of the District of Columbia would complain about open air drug markets or they would complain about criminal activity in their neighborhood. And then the people they would complain to were your ANC commissioners, you know, local officials, city council members, the mayor's office. And what they would do is they would come to the police department and say, hey, listen, I've got a constituent. They're complaining about this problem in their area, and, and I need to see results. I need to be able to go back to my constituents and tell them. So the easiest solution to that problem is to go out there, make a show of force, put a bunch of cops in that area, and make some arrests. Whether or not that actually solved the problem, I mean, in my experience, it did not. But that's what city council members wanted to see. And, you know, that's how they would report back to their constituents that things were getting done. Yeah, but if you're in that neighborhood and you look out your window and your city council person tells you, well, you know, over the last three months, drug arrests or violent crime arrests are up 32 percent. And you look out your window, like pretty good chance, you know, nothing substantively has changed. Correct. That being said, I mean, that was the way that city council and you know, these A and C commissioners and the executive level in the police department, your, you know, chiefs, assistant chiefs, that's what they wanted to see. That was the easiest way to put those complaints to bed, you know, whether or not it, it was solving the problem. I mean, I think it was pretty obvious that it was not solving the problem. And it was just clogging up the criminal justice system with a bunch of, you know, relatively meaningless arrests. Right. And then those I assume predominantly men go to jail or go to prison and then they learn how to be criminals. I mean, <laughs> to be totally honest with you, in, in Washington, D.C., a lot of those guys were not ending up. And again, these arrests were oftentimes for petty misdemeanors, possession charges. You know, we weren't investing in long term police investigations. We were doing, you know, a um, quick. It's a Band-Aid. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a Band-Aid. I would say that if there's a thread, as I'm talking to you here, is that there is a lot of refusing 
or an unwillingness or inability to understand sort of a root cause of a problem, whether or not it's at the street, whether or not it's within the department as you experienced post January 6th, whether or not it's with your union when you and Officer Dunn and a couple of others went to one of your union meetings. But it was also interesting to see that you did build relationships with a lot of folks there. You know, you're a white guy from Virginia. You hunt, you fish, you listen to Sturgill Simpson in your pickup <laughs> truck, right? Yep. But one of your closest relationships was a 60-something-year-old black trans woman, right? Yeah. And someone who you did an incredible amount of work with and built like a true relationship with. And that, to me, was one where I said, okay, there's something here that is different, not only about you, Mike, but also about how we do things, because I think you hear about community policing, but you spend a lot of time on the training, too. And, you know, the idea that, like, if you're in the military, right, there's live fire exercises, you know, whether or not you're a rifleman or a Marine, special forces, whoever it is, so that you talk about a lot of times, and this also goes into, you know, a little bit of what you saw in the street and how it prepared you for the Capitol. But if you're a beat cop, a patrol cop, and the only firearms training you have is every six months with a paper target, then is it your sense that a lot of this stuff that happens when we see officer-involved shootings, it's like that adrenaline rush that hits, and it's like, is it a fight-or-flight thing because there's no experience with that kind of situation? Absolutely. I mean, I had the good fortune of, towards the end of my career, working as a, a second job for a law enforcement military training company, and we addressed those specific issues within law enforcement training. What I see is police officers who have not had appropriate training and not had training often enough. When you talk about going to the range twice a year and shooting at a static target, that's not training. That's familiarization. You're not learning how to make those types of decisions, in some instances, life or death decisions under duress. And that's something that seems to be lacking in law enforcement training. Also, the um, how often officers train. Is it enough that a police officer goes to the range twice a year and attends in-service training, which depending on what department, you know, the quality of that can vary. I know within, you know, the Metropolitan Police Department, you know, we tried to address certain things, but unfortunately, you know, I think it was wholly inadequate. So what I saw and what I learned from my time working for this company was that training breeds proficiency in weapons and tactics. And proficient officers are confident and confident officers use less force. It was also interesting too that you talked about traffic stops, that if you didn't find a weapon, you didn't find drugs, you gave them a warning, which I think is probably to most of the folks listening, that's what we're hoping for, right? Like, I don't want to ticket, I don't want to ticket, I don't want to ticket. But that, I think that's also, you know, well, let me say this, and, and you get into a little bit of the racial aspects of this too, which is, if I'm a white guy driving my Lexus in Utah, right, and I get pulled over, I'm going to be okay, right? Maybe I get a ticket, but I'm going to be okay. But I guess I would ask you this, from your experience, both for the officer and let's say a person of color, whether an African-American, Latino or whatever, the experience on both ends of that situation must be very different. No, oh, absolutely. I'll say this. The units that I worked in, I think there was a uh, misconception, you know, even the narcotics units that I worked in. Our deployment was based off of violent crime. It was not based off of, in most cases, outside of like very specific complaints 
it was not based off of, you know, where drugs were prevalent. I mean, drugs are everywhere, but we were deployed based off uh, violent crime. So the thought process there was if there is shootings or other types of violence occurring in a specific neighborhood, you would, you know, task our office or an office similar to ours with going into that neighborhood and conducting investigations in the hope of developing cooperating informants, developing information about the violent crimes, or just with our mere presence, quelling that activity for a period of time and and hopefully identifying and arresting some of the offenders. In doing so, I think one of the biggest tools in my toolbox as a uh, proactive police officer were pretextual stops. So that's where you get into, you know, your traffic stops. You're out there, you're conducting lawful stops, but you're looking for more serious criminal activity than somebody that makes a right-hand turn on red. You know, I spent the majority of my uh, policing career living paycheck to paycheck and oftentimes worse than that. So I know what a uh, traffic fine can do. I think one year I racked up about $3,000 worth of parking tickets just for going to uh, court. So if the person wasn't engaged in criminal activity, I'm not going to add insult to injury, giving them a, uh, a ticket, perpetuating that cycle when times are hard enough. Because it's a $150 ticket, then there's maybe a court date, which means a day off work. They missed the court date. Now there's potentially a bench warrant, extra fines. And before you know it, it's thousands of dollars and this person gets picked up, spends the night in the lockup because they made a right turn on red. Absolutely. Those type of you know monetary penalties, for me, I also talk, I think, somewhat in the book about you know my views of the criminal justice system. And listen, I, I believe that systemic racism exists in America. And I believe that there is evidence of systemic racism in the criminal justice system. But what I saw as most prevalent in my 20 years as an inner city police officer was systemic classism in the fact that these cash penalties, whether it's for you know minor traffic infractions or cash bail, disproportionately penalized people that you know, they're living paycheck to paycheck, your blue collar workers and, and people that are living at or below the poverty line. So you said something about proactive policing. So I want to fast forward to the morning of January 6th. I brought up proactive because like we saw with so many law enforcement officers and firefighters on 9-11, you and your partner ran to the sound of the guns and just want to get a sense because let me just tell you, as someone who was watching on television, we saw the speech and we tracked Trump speaking all the time. And it was kooky, but it wasn't kookier than normal because he'd been lying if well, he lies about everything. But then it was one of those things, Mike, like it was like a tsunami, like the wave just started growing and growing and growing as these people were approaching the Capitol. And then as they're headed up the steps and you're sort of like, what is happening here? What is going on here? So now you get up early in the morning you're starting to see this stuff, you and your partner go, was there ever any question that you guys weren't going? No question. I had made that decision when I was driving over the 14th Street Bridge from Virginia into D.C. I actually uh, picked up the phone and called Leslie, who was you know my longtime informant, 
I worked with for two decades and, and told her that we weren't going to be doing the heroin buy that we had planned on. It actually turned out to be one of the last conversations I ever had with Leslie. She passed away, unfortunately, shortly after January 6th. But I mean, late that morning, I was hearing the um, reports from officers that were there on the ellipse that there were individuals who were armed. And I'm talking about armed in the traditional sense, contrary to what Senator Ron Johnson seems to think. There were individuals with firearms, and those individuals were arrested, and they were there to participate in the Stop the Steal rally. So I knew that there was, um, you know, obviously this was a, a very unique assembly uh, rally. I remember also the fact that even prior to President Trump taking the stage and, and speaking, there was a large group that was reported as having broken off from the rally and was headed to the Capitol. So to me, I knew even back then that this violence that took place at the Capitol, this was pre-planned and premeditated. I just didn't know if there was a connection between uh, Donald Trump and his supporters or his uh, administration, which we now know there was. I guess I would say around 1 p.m., I heard over my police radio the reports that uh, the outermost perimeter at the Capitol complex had been breached, that there were officers who were under attack, and that members of my department, the Metropolitan Police Department, were responding to assist. After that, it's kind of a blur. I remember, um, you know, 1033s or distress calls coming out. Uh, from you know, multiple officers that were on the scene. And then I remember the agency 1033, which is something I've never heard before in my 20-year career. Which means everybody's in trouble. Yeah. I mean, that's like a broken arrow in the military. And so I uh, made the decision that I was going to respond. I pulled up to the first district station, walked upstairs, walked into my partner Jimmy Albright's office, and he was sitting at his desk, and um, he asked me what we were going to do, and I said, we're going to go. I went into the locker room, and for the first time in, a, I'd say, over a decade, I put my uniform on. Because you were a plain clothes guy. Yep. Yeah, I worked uh, plain clothes and undercover the majority of my career. So we, um, we got in a car, we drove up to the Capitol, and uh, made our way into the south entrance of the Capitol complex. But there were two Capitol cops who were like, you can't come unless you have a permit. <laughs> Which, yeah. I hate to laugh, Mike, but there was sort of at that moment, the ridiculousness of it must have just boggled the mind. I mean, I attribute it to this, man. When you're under stress, you know, you never rise to the occasion. You fall back on your training. And those officers have been trained. You know, that's what they say. You come to our barricade. You need to have a pass or, an, or approval to get in. So I get it. I mean, it's difficult to think outside the box, you know, under those conditions. Now, was it ridiculous? You know, fuck yeah, it was ridiculous. But, uh, you know, Jimmy and I, rather than argue, parked the car and walked our happy asses up to the Capitol building. You know, once we got to Independence Avenue, you knew it was on. I mean, there were, I'd say, dozens of police vehicles parked on Independence Avenue 
Now, I remember seeing where, you know, there were police barricades, the bicycle racks that had been toppled over and breached. And there was, you know, hundreds of Trump supporters kind of milling about, yelling, chanting. They're screaming at Jimmy. They're screaming at me. They called Jimmy a traitor, which I, I know for a fact pissed him off. Uh, this is a guy that served multiple combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, had a 20-year career in the military, and you know spent 13 years now in law enforcement. And he's a fucking traitor. So as we made our way up to the Capitol, you know, we passed by several uh, officers. I remember walking up a ramp that leads up to that south entrance, and there was blood all over the ground. Once we got inside, we walked down the, I guess they call it the Hall of Columns, and that leads up to the crypt, which is the center of the Capitol just below the rotunda. That's where the tourists were that day, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. You know, it pisses me off so much when Andrew Clyde said that, obviously. I mean, I confronted him at the Capitol, and he, he ran away like a— Literally ran away. Like a coward. But what he did was he referred to a still shot of individuals, you know, at the earliest stages of the breach that were walking through Statuary Hall and happened to, you know, walk through the roped-off area. And, you know, Mike, I saw that, and it seemed to me that they almost seemed sort of shocked that they'd made it that far. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. But what he did, you know, and what a lot of, you know, these fringe members of the Republican Party, uh, I call them the, the tinfoil hat brigade, they've taken micro events from that day and turned them into a macro explanation of what happened. I'm sure at some point, somewhere, two people hugged it out on the west front of the Capitol, but that doesn't mean that it was a fucking hugs and kisses between violent insurrectionists and law enforcement. Right. Let me ask you this. Do you remember everything about that day? Vividly. Vividly. You're going in, and from the description you give, they're basically a wall, wall-to-wall officers trying to keep dozens of y'all maybe, right? Maybe hundreds trying to keep thousands of rioters out and you and, and your partner push, push, push to the front. And you're saying, if you're tired, get back. If you're tired to get back, nobody will go back, right? Everybody's staying there. So now you get to the front and there's the famous picture of you in the sea of MAGA, QAnon, all of it, right? With your black helmet on your MPD helmet on. And now they just start going at you. So talk about that a little bit because you have a heart attack. You're tased in the back of the neck, right? And you have scar tissue, as I understand it, from that. But it was interesting that you said you realized, like, how bad this was going to get. And you said, I have kids. I have kids. And somehow this, like, changed the tone, at least of the people right around you. Like, give us a sense of what that was like. Well, let me go back to the crypt. Jimmy and I were there, and I heard on my radio another distress call at 1033 from the Lower West Terrace Tunnel. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with spending time in the Capitol. Lower West Terrace Tunnel is this pretty uh, distinguished location in the Capitol. It's where the president-elect walks out onto the inaugural stage to take the oath of office. And it's long, narrow hallway, probably about 200 feet long. And 
it was about as wide as I'd say four or five police officers standing shoulder to shoulder. Jimmy and I went there immediately. And when we first got down into the tunnel, we were looking through a set of double doors and there's glass panes in these double doors. And I could see through the glass, this group of officers standing at the threshold of the tunnel. But in the air, it was cloudy with this residual kind of white powder, which was from the uh, CS gas that had been deployed. And is that like tear gas? Yes. So once we open the double doors, you're just overcome with the gas. I mean, it hits you like a ton of bricks. It's difficult to see. It's difficult to breathe. And I was definitely rethinking my decision to come down there. But I remember seeing a friend of mine who I actually started my career with at U.S. Capitol Police, and then we joined MPD together, Ramey Kyle, who at the time was a commander. He was a commander of the Metropolitan Police Department's Investigative Services Bureau, and he had self-deployed to the Capitol. And he found himself into the Lower West Terrace Tunnel commanding a group of about 40 MPD officers and about a half a dozen U.S. Capitol Police officers. And they had all been there since the fighting began, which at this point, it was about 3 p.m., and they had been there since shortly after 1 p.m. So we're talking about two hours of nonstop hand-to-hand combat in a scenario when they were greatly outnumbered. Right. Which I think speaks to the willingness to stand and fight, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, when I got to the group of officers and, and you know, I was standing in the back, uh, you could see that there were officers who were injured that were being triaged and assisted by other officers who were also injured. And pretty much everybody that was standing there was fatigued and injured in some way. I mean, under normal circumstances, I don't think there's a single officer that was in that tunnel that wouldn't have been carted off to the you know nearest hospital. But that was not an option. You know, these officers were rendering aid to one another and then getting their asses back up and getting in the line because there was nowhere to go. I mean, we were surrounded. The Capitol had been breached at that point, although I don't know if they knew it. There was rioters in the crypt and there was also thousands of rioters on the west front of the Capitol. So Jimmy and I, having just gotten there, figured we should go up to the front. And as we made our way through the group of officers that were there, we were, you know, shouting out, you know, who needs help, who needs a break. There were officers that identified colleagues that were, you know, were injured and and Jimmy and I assisted a couple guys to the back before we got up to the front. When we got up to the front, it was wall-to-wall rioters, and um, it was like a medieval battle scene. All these guys just crammed into this very confined space, trying to resist an onslaught of, you know, thousands upon thousands of insurrectionists. We were being attacked with everything from aluminum baseball bats, metal poles. There were scaffolding and um, bicycle racks that uh, were being used as battering rams. And then, you know, that's in addition to, I mean, there was also uh, individuals with knives, people that had fashioned uh, knives on the end of flagpoles, turned flagpoles into spears. There were firearms. Ramey Kyle tells a story about how... um, you know, he picked up a firearm off the ground that one of the uh, rioters had dropped and, you know, had it with him the entire day. You know, a lot was made of the fact that there weren't 
more arrests made that day, and it was because we were fighting for our lots. Making arrests was not a possibility. That being said, we were also facing a number of different chemical irritants, bear spray, pepper spray, OC spray, and also commercial-grade fireworks. Imagine the percussion of a commercial-grade firework inside of you know, a confined stone hallway. So when I got up to the front, you know, at one point I was yelling out to uh, try to rally you know, all the officers there and, and myself you know, to push these guys out. And you know, there was some pretty intense fighting for uh, what seemed like an eternity. Eventually, we started gaining ground. We were able to push them out of the tunnel. And once we got to about the threshold of the tunnel, there was an individual, one of the riders, Albuquerque Head from Tennessee. And that's his real name. That's his real name. Grabbed a hold of me, pulled me off the police line, out into the crowd. And I remember him yelling out that I got one. And after that, yeah, I was just getting beaten from every direction with fists, metal objects. And I remember at one point, you know, I was out in the crowd and I, I was trying to uh, create some distance between me and, you know, the, the individuals that were assaulting me. I was trying to push them back. And at, at one point, I remember one of the uh, riders kind of charging towards me and grabbing at my gun. And I remember thinking about, you know, using deadly force. I felt like it was certainly appropriate with regards to a few of the individuals that were there in the crowd. But then I was concerned about, you know, pulling my gun, even if I was able to get it with all these individuals grabbing at me, whether or not I'd be able to A, hit my target and B, continue to retain my weapon before somebody stripped it away from me and most likely use it against me. Right. And how many other people might have had pistols or God knows what else, right? Yep. And, and I think, it, you know, knowing what I know now, I think there was individuals that were just waiting for that first shot to be fired. And so yeah, I went to plan B and plan B was, you know, psychological warfare. I came up with, you know, I have kids and I thought, you know, maybe this would appeal to somebody that was in the crowd. And it did. There were a few people that uh, that intervened on my behalf, and uh, I mean, it was surreal watching rioters fight with other rioters who were still trying to get at me to prevent them from attacking me, and um, you know, eventually that gave responding officers from the tunnel enough time to get to me and and evacuate me back into the tunnel. And you came up with an expression for the rioters that helped you out. Yeah. But- one of the first interviews I gave, I said, uh, thank you, but fuck you for being there, which I, I still feel the same way. Right. So now, you know, you're, you're pulled back into the crypt, I guess. There's no way there's going to get an ambulance, right? So you basically get driven to the hospital, to Washington Hospital Center. Doctor says, you're like, okay, I'll be okay in a few weeks. He's like, no, this is months. And I assume that those months still continue today. I definitely feel I've had a full recovery from um, my physical injuries. You know, that day in the emergency room, I learned that, you know, my troponin levels had spiked significantly, and that's how the determination was made that I had a, a heart attack. And then I later learned 
or was later diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury. I had excellent medical care. The doctors at Washington Hospital Center were phenomenal. The treatment that I received was top-notch. But I also worked incredibly hard at you know, my physical recovery and, and also recovering from the psychological injuries that I sustained that day, the trauma of having experienced something like that. And I mean, quite frankly, the trauma of having a, had a 20-year career in law enforcement and all the other critical incidents that I responded to and participated in and probably never addressed those either. Right. But it was interesting that you talk about, and I want to get to the present day, and I want to talk about some of your experience with members of Congress in the hearings. But first, the department says you can't do interviews on behalf of yourself as a police officer, but you can as an individual. And as we've seen, Mike, you don't hold back much, right? You're a pretty forthright guy. And some of your superiors at the department are like, we don't talk about this stuff, right? These are the kinds of things we keep to ourselves, which I guess makes sense for a police officer or members of the military, but also is got to be some sort of bottling up of things that is, I think it was one of your therapists said, you just have to keep talking, just have to keep talking, especially if you've experienced PTSD or you're still dealing with it. And it seemed like there were these sort of almost like out of a TV show mantras that came out of the police department. You don't talk about your feelings. You don't talk about what you experienced. You don't talk about this. You don't talk about that. You don't talk. It's the thin blue line, right? Like what goes on inside the precinct, it happens inside the precinct. What goes on outside is outside and neither the twain shall meet. But do you think that between you, Officer Dunn, and some of the, your other colleagues in law enforcement, do you think that this is an important thing for other law enforcement officers to say like, yeah, I mean, all departments have psychiatrists, right? I'm sure a lot of officers don't want to deal with it if they're involved in a shooting or some traumatic event. But like, do you think that that's a component of some of our issues as well, is that there's this sort of like, no, you keep it to yourself, don't talk about it? No, absolutely. Transparency in law enforcement doesn't begin and end with body-worn camera footage being released. I think it's important to talk about every aspect of that experience. And that's what I did. When I wrote the book, I wanted to be completely honest, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent. I was going to express the reality of my experience as a police officer in hoping that it would provide a perspective that maybe was not or had not been available previously so that we could have productive, constructive conversations about everything from policing, police reform, to the realities of January 6th. That was my motivation there. I mean, I, I took a lot of shit from other cops. I think they felt like I was airing dirty laundry. You know, when I talked about this specific detective, Yari Babich, who was assigned to the January 6th task force and his job was to investigate assaults against MPD officers, myself included. And this is a guy that's disparaging me. I thought that was important because it demonstrates how, you know, people talk about the thin blue line and they talk about this blue wall of silence. Well, it's not a united response. Officers just don't want other officers talking about the inner workings of the police department or, you know, the social structure of the police department. But that being said, we are more critical of ourselves than anyone could possibly be, than, you know, the most hardcore defund the police activist and all their criticisms. They pale in comparison to how 
police officers critique and criticize their own. You know, I experienced that full-throated critiquing of pretty much everything that I did. It was also represented the most difficult criticism to bear. I had guys that I worked with for 20 years that I cared about deeply call me up and tell me I was a disgrace to the badge. You know, people that either misunderstood my motivations or never took the time to read or listen to an entire interview. They just looked at, you know, the soundbite or the snippet or the meme. And that, you know, was difficult to deal with. Do you think that the friends you had on the force and the officers maybe you didn't know, but as you talk about as you're trying to go back to work, literally turn their back on you? Were they looking at it at the prism as like, this is a glory hound, one, two, that there were at least a significant number of officers who maybe were okay with, you know, they love Trump or whatever, but was it political in nature? Because I'm not quite sure I understand, again, why they got so upset. And maybe that's just me because I am an outsider. You know, okay, yeah, there's the wall of silence, but I mean, these people came to try and kill you, right? And Officer Sicknick did die that day, and several other officers have taken their lives. And so I don't understand this desire to minimize that day from a law enforcement perspective or, you know, single out people like yourselves or maybe Officer Dunn or, or the others who were there that day, stood up, right? But for guys like you and Eugene Goodman, right, like you held the line long enough. And that's what we needed on that day was it if they had gotten to the floor, if they had gotten to the speaker, if they had gotten them, like these people would be dead. There was already blood everywhere, blood and shit everywhere, but there would have been dead bodies everywhere. So why is it so hard for law enforcement agencies, local, federal, whatever, to come to grips with this and accept that like what happened that day was not okay? And frankly, to give you and, you know, your fellow officers, they did give some sort of recognition, but it always seemed to be sort of grudgingly. Well, first, let me address like my agency and, and the way that, you know, rank and file officers responded to my outspokenness. I think that the vast majority of people that were critical of me, you know, speaking out, misunderstood my motivations and felt that I was an attention seeker. And I think many of them, because I've spoken to a few, didn't even take the time to listen to what it was that I was saying. It was just enough that I was out there and speaking publicly. Then there's another group, I think, that was angry or upset because, you know, I drew attention to the fact that while there were about 3,500 MPD officers working on January 6th, only about 800, 850 responded to the Capitol. And while I fully understand that our department is responsible for a whole host of functions and have a lot of responsibilities within the city. Right, that are very unique to Washington, D.C. Yes. There was also plenty of officers that were able-bodied and you know able to respond to the Capitol who didn't. And I thought that was disgraceful. And um, you know their motivations vary. They're not all Trump-supporting, whatever. But I think there were large number of officers who were just indifferent to what was happening at the Capitol. And that's something that's not unique to law enforcement. I think that indifference is playing a big role in why 
you know, Donald Trump continues to be a, at least in some people's eyes, a viable candidate for the presidency is because they're indifferent to, you know, the harm that he's caused to so many different people. Well, and your mom in an interview with CNN actually said, quote, the silence to me implies indifference or complicity. No, absolutely. I mean, deviate from what we were talking about for a second. I mean, you're, you have so many people within or so many members of the Republican Party who are indifferent to January 6th and the reality of that day, who are willing to just turn their back on the officers who responded, the victims of January 6th, and, and really anyone in this country that was traumatized by what they saw in the hopes of having political success for their party in the midterm elections and then in the presidential election, which, I mean, that to me is about the most dishonorable thing that you can do as an American. Mike, you relate that you and some of your fellow officers went around with Officer Sicknick's mother and you met with several Republicans. I just have to read this because I think it's such a perfect thing. We met next with Ron Johnson of Wisconsin and spent a lot of time listening to Ron Johnson talk about Ron Johnson and the ways in which Ron Johnson is misunderstood. Like that literally should be the campaign against him, but neither here nor there. But as someone who'd experienced that, now you're sitting here with the mother of a fallen officer. How did you keep yourself from like not turning over a table as the likes of Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham? I mean, they're, don't get me started on them. They're risible to begin with, but how does that make you feel as someone who literally and figuratively still bears the scars of it? How could they do that to this guy's mother? I don't know how people like that can live with themselves. All I know is that I never experienced so much indifference in such a short period of time. You asked me you know, how I kept my composure. Like, I, I have no idea. I know I went home and had a stiff drink after that day. <laughs> But uh, right. yeah, I mean, it was very clear to me at the outset of the day. I remember sitting in a room with Barbara Comstock, mm -hmm. former member of Congress from Virginia. Right. You know, she was the one who was kind of setting up the schedule and really just kind of facilitating the day. And she was saying that, you know, all right, this is how much time we have with this senator and that senator. And he's like, she's like, all right, we have five minutes with it. And I'm like, five minutes. Are you fucking kidding me? Like I came up here to escort the mother of a fallen police officer who died as a result of his service on January 6th, and Ted Cruz says we can have five minutes. Well, fuck him. Who's next? And then, they, you know, like Mitch McConnell. Well, Mitch McConnell says he's too busy to meet with you, but he'll send a, an aide. And then it turned out to be, you know, the aide that he was going to send was like a junior staffer. It's like some 18-year-old kid. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And then on top of that, to find out that you know, Mitch McConnell was contacting all the senators that we were going around to speak to, asking for a personal favor, that they vote against the bipartisan commission to investigate the activities of January 6th. I mean, that is, to me, the most extreme level of indifference imaginable. And so that's why yesterday during the uh, hearing, there was a lot of people that were 
you know, singing Mitch McConnell's praises because he was so composed and he was trying to get done what needed to be done. Fuck him. <laughs> well, you're not going to get much argument from this side of the microphone. He is the definition of indifference and complicity. That will be his epitaph. Yes, absolutely. He doesn't have a compassionate, empathetic bone in his body. You know, I think he deserves all the criticism that he gets. Uh, but it, I mean, it didn't stop there. We met with Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott, and I think it was Mike Lee. I will say this. Of all the people that we met with that day, Tim Scott was the only one who acknowledged Mrs. Sicknick's loss. I remember thinking to myself the entire time that I was meeting and speaking to Lindsey Graham that, you know, what the fuck does Donald Trump have on you? I mean, he was like Donald Trump's lapdog. You know, he lost his temper with Mrs. Sicknick when she, you know, suggested that Donald Trump was responsible for what happened on January 6th and threatened to shut down the meeting then and there. I remember showing my body-worn camera footage, which, you know, I showed to anybody and everybody that, that would watch, and he couldn't even be bothered to spend five minutes looking at it. You know, it was mostly staff members. And Senator Scott. I guess I, I wish I could tell you that any of that was surprising, but it's not given who I know these people are, either from my time when I was still a Republican or, or what we've learned about them since. So let's talk about the hearing. As we're recording this, the hearing of the January 6th committee took place yesterday, Thursday. First, have you been to all of the hearings? Yeah, I went to all of them. Okay. And I know you, you have a prominent place. You and several officers sit right there behind the witness table. But yesterday in particular, I want to get your sense as a former law enforcement officer that it seemed like at least the Secret Service and perhaps other law enforcement agencies had days worth of notice that violence was coming. It seemed, Mike, like there was this institutional unwillingness to say, Mr. President, there's a lot of bad stuff that's going to happen. We can't have this rally. You have to tell these people not to come. And whether or not it's your experience with these members of Congress or what we're even still seeing this day with so many Americans, which is this unwillingness or inability to stand up to an individual who is as bad and mendacious a person as maybe ever walked the earth. What does it say to you? I mean, they knew violence was coming 24 hours a week, 10 days. These are federal protectees, right? They didn't even tell Mike Pence who almost died, right? They would have killed him. I mean, what does that say to you as a former law enforcement agent, officer? You know, we've talked a lot about, you know, throughout the select committee's public hearings and, and throughout the investigation about individuals within institutions that held the line, so to speak. You know, you had members of the Department of Justice who refused to allow themselves or their agency to be corrupted by Donald Trump and his influence. To me, the Secret Service is a premier example of what happens when an agency becomes corrupted by Donald Trump. I was shocked when I learned that the Secret Service was aware of the fact that there were individuals who were armed. I mean, think about it for a second. You know, you're the Secret Service. You're charged with protecting the officer of the presidency, the president of the United States at the time was Donald Trump. And there's a rally with thousands upon thousands of people, the majority of which 
won't even go into and submit to security. But then outside that area, you're hearing reports of a man with an AR-15 in a fucking tree, individuals being arrested for weapons possession, AR-15s. I mean, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I know past members of the Secret Service, and they told me that in their time and tenure, the president would have been whisked away immediately upon reports that there were multiple individuals armed outside of the security perimeter. But that didn't happen. And the fact that that information was not disseminated instantaneously, that the information that, you know, that they had, like you said, 10 days in advance, never made its way down to rank and file members of my department or the U.S. Capitol Police is outrageous. And, you know, I've heard some people talk about, well, you know, I'm sure the Secret Service gets threats all the time. Well, listen, it's still their job to disseminate intelligence, period. I mean, we get plenty of reports about, you know, some homeless person who's threatened to walk from Seattle, Washington to Washington, D.C. to uh, attack the president. The likelihood of that happening, virtually zero. But I still get some bulletin in my email regarding that. So have the hearings themselves. I mean, I know you testified at the first hearing in the summer of 21, you and your fellow officers, have they been cathartic for you? Have they dredged up memories you don't want to remember? Have they been enlightening? Is there anything that you didn't know or suspect that you've learned from this? Well, first, when it comes to the, uh, the day, January 6th, I have come to terms with what happened that day and my experience that day. And I'm proud of the way that I performed and, and I'm proud of, you know, the officers that fought alongside of me in the tunnel. So there's no dredging up of bad memories from January 6th. But what makes my blood boil is learning all this evidence. I mean, listen, I knew on January 7th that Donald Trump was morally and ethically responsible for January 6th. What I wasn't sure of was whether or not there was criminal culpability there. And what the select committee, I think, did an excellent job of doing was investigating January 6th and the weeks and months leading up to it and the Trump administration's involvement. And uh, I think it's clear now that Donald Trump engaged in an effort to defraud the American people. He lied about the results of the 2020 election. He lied about the election not being free and fair as it was. And as a result of those lies, as well as members of his administration and people from his inner circle interacting with these anti-government, you know, right-wing groups like the Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, and the Proud Boys, who planned for violence that day. Right. These guys showed up for battle. Correct. I mean, that was always their plan. And I think Trump absolutely knew what was going to occur that day. And I think that's what he wanted to occur that day. And I think we now have evidence of that. And so I believe that, you know, Donald Trump absolutely is criminally culpable for the activities of January 6th and his supporters at the Capitol. And I think that he should be indicted 
and I think he should be tried. Well, amen to that. Let me ask you one last question. Between the injuries you sustained, I'm going to call it the dramatic change in your life since that day. We see others like Fiona Hill or Alex Venman, right, who their careers were ended by Trump because they stood up and said something. Liz Cheney from Wyoming, her political career, at least in this moment, is over come January 3rd of next year. Adam Kinzinger will not be coming back to Congress. If I asked them this question, I think I'd get the same answer. But knowing what you know now and everything that you went through, your family's been through, your friends have been through, would you do anything differently? No. Not at all. Yep. I mean, I think it's as simple as that. Are you surprised that more people don't do it? Because to me, it seems like there are just a hell of a lot more people in Washington, D.C. or elsewhere that know better, and they just sit quietly. In that respect, it's shocking to me. I mean, you have so many members of Congress, Republican members of Congress, specifically those who have served, people who understand what it means to engage in violence on behalf of democracy. How is it that you could fulfill your oath then, but you can't fulfill your oath in this time of need for America against somebody who is so clearly a danger and dishonor to America. That just fucking boggles my mind. I mean, as far as like other people standing up, I mean, I wish they would, but I understand why they wouldn't. I think my book speaks to, you know, what happens at least at this period of time in America when people stand up and try to speak the truth and in doing so place themselves in an adversarial position against Donald Trump. And not just Donald Trump, but Trumpism and all that it's come to be. Right. And you note that Tucker Carlson talks about, you know, you're a crisis actor. You know, you really weren't that injured. The right wing media machine cranks up, you know, more of us than I care to remember have all been part of that. But, you know, it's sort of par for the course, doesn't always make it easy. But I want to close with this. And this is Molly Ball, who's an excellent reporter, known her a long time from Time Magazine, wrote this. She said, quote, this would be a story about you, about what we agree to remember and what we choose to forget about how history is not lived, but manufactured after the fact. And I thought that that was probably as good a description of the fight, maybe at its core, even beyond democracy, Mike, that we're fighting right now, which is not Republican versus Democrat, left versus right. You believe this, you believe that. But that there are people who actively all day, every day, attempt to rewrite history for their own purposes and almost exclusively not for a better purpose, right? They're not trying to rewrite history to say, here are the people like Mike Fanone who served as heroes, but here's Mike Fanone, glory hound, anti-Trumper, defund the police, traitor to the cops. And that's the story they want to tell about you because the story that they can't tell is that you did the right thing at the right time in the face of people who would have done anything to preserve one man's time in office. And so for that, I just want to say from everybody from here at the Lincoln Project Wednesday, thank you for your service. Aside from CNN, can we find you anywhere else online? My agents and my publicists have told me no social media whatsoever. Oh, that's good advice. I can't blame them. But uh, yeah, no, I, I really appreciate you guys having me on. So everybody, the book is Hold the Line, Mike Fanone, The Insurrection and One Cop's Battle for America's Soul. 
Mike, I want to thank you for joining me. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter, on social media, against my better judgment, at Reed Galen. Mike, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. And Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.